Uh, listen, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Acts chapter 12, and that's where we're going to be this morning. If you're new um, and still figuring out, sort of navigating the library of Scripture, uh, back one-third of your Bible is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are four Gospels. Right after that is the book of Acts, and that's where we're going to be. <clears throat> Behold, I am sending you out as ducklings in the midst of cars on Cherry Avenue. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. It's not an exact translation, but the sentiment is really, really dead on. Uh, We had some little baby ducks uh, on a Saturday. We're all out in the front yard doing coaster cars and bikes and whatnot, and all of a sudden we noticed uh, a mom and her little band of followers enter our garage. And as you can imagine, uh, everyone in our household was quite excited about this. And we were seeing them in there, and we were sort of trying to coax them out because they were sort of trapped in there. And, uh, and my wife finally went in sort of one side to try and sort of steer them back out of the garage. And the scary thing was is that if you left the safety of our garage you had a bunch of children squealing and going, ah, like all of that. So it was kind of a catch-22 for, for Mama Duck. Um, and let me, just, let me just show you here a little bit. You want to see some baby ducks? Of course you do. All right, watch this. All right, so there they are leaving our garage. My wife is near the front of the Jeep, sort of like getting them to leave. And here they are just kind of cruising along. Um, Across our yard. Catch the, catch the flamingo in the lower left here in just a second. We had pink flamingos in our yard. Okay, maybe you didn't quite see it. But, um, but here's what happened. They had to make their way out of the garage through the land of giant pink flamingos that were awfully scary to a little duckling, I'd imagine. They made it sort of along our bush line, like just sort of hiding in there. And at this point, I had to go somewhere. So I got in my car, and I think I was going back to work. And as I drove away... Right at the end of our bushes, as you enter sort of the sidewalk area, my neighbor's fence is here. It's missing a plank right now. And Bandit, our cat, is sitting right there with his face through that plank. And Bandit is an excellent hunter. He leaves us gifts all the time on our front porch as a love offering. And so I quickly call my wife while I'm driving back, and I said, Becky, I said, Bandit's right there. Uh, make sure he doesn't eat the ducklings. Like, that would be years of therapy, I'm sure, for everyone. So come to find out, she texts me a little while later that my wife risked limb and life to, uh, to keep them from Bandit. But then what did mom do? Mom went into Cherry Avenue, the street we live on. And my wife went in front of traffic to stop traffic while baby ducks are crossing the road, um, which in the grand scheme of things, I think that's foolish. I would much rather have my wife than the ducks live, but that's just me. So, but, but then once they got halfway across, the little mama duck and ducklings were on their own. And Becky told me that cars are flying. People either do 15 miles per hour on Cherry Avenue or they do 55. It's really weird. No one does 35. So cars are racing over this little family of ducks. 
And she texted me at the end. She said, everyone is safe and sound, meaning all the ducks. So happy ending. Now we can go on with the sermon. You don't need to worry and wonder about what happened with the ducks. The good shepherd, Jesus did say this. That was a very loose translation, as in that really didn't happen. But there is a phrase that uh, is close to it. Here's what the good shepherd says. I go before them. The sheep, that's Christians, follow me, for they know my voice. That's what the good shepherd says. And here's the point of bringing up baby ducks at the start of the sermon, is that there is danger on every side. The Bible warns us that Satan is like a prowling bandit, a prowling cat, a big cat, a lion, waiting to devour you. Some of our fears are real, like a cat, like cars that can destroy us. Some of them are perceived. Big peak flamingos won't really hurt the baby ducks. The squealing kids probably weren't going to hurt the ducks. But life is scary, and the Christian life in particular is filled with dangers. The moment you sign up, to follow Jesus. Here's the good news. Little mama duck was lost. She was not all-knowing. She wasn't a very good leader. In fact, she led the hike on a crazy journey, um, and by God's providence, allowed all the baby ducks to live. Jesus promised this, I'm not going to lose a single one of them. And Jesus knows where he's taking us. So church, at the start this morning, as we look at Acts 12, this, this all is just so fitting for Acts 12. But as we look for Acts 12, um, the warning is this, don't just go wandering off on your own. Do not go and try to find greener pastures and looking for the life that you seek. Stay close, stay intimately close, in step, listen to my voice, Jesus says, follow my lead. In Acts chapter 12, it's going to bring up a ton of topics and questions. Let me rattle off some of the ones that, as I studied this passage and just sort of read, some of these popped off in my mind, and you'll have your own questions you can think of, but here's some that kind of came to mind. Why do people hate Christians so much? What happens when I pray? How big or small should I pray? What about when God doesn't seem to answer the prayers of the church, the desperate prayers of the church? What about when we do it wrong, as in pray? Are angels real? What are they like? Are miracles real? What are they like? Why can't I figure God out? Is he hiding? How about this one? Will I have the right amount of courage to pass the test when I face it? Is peace possible? And finally, what's up with leaders always thinking they are so self-important? So that's just a little list. We're not going to cover all of that because we don't have time. But as you read scripture, it's good to ask questions of the text. It's good to let the text ask questions of you, reader, church, as we read it. So we're going to do that this morning. Let me just remind you of where we are in the story. This is the story of the early church, born at Pentecost, when the Spirit falls on each person in the upper room. And the church has chosen to obey the call to go and take this good news, this gospel, this resurrection lifestyle and message and community to the whole world. But remember, Jesus said, wait, until, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Now, here's what we see so far in just a few chapters, uh, is that this church has had massive gains. They're all the way up in Antioch. 
Antioch is 300 miles away from Jerusalem. That's roughly my house to L.A., sort of the north part of L.A. So the gospel has already traveled a really, really long ways. And when you think, like, how is this happening, it's utterly obvious. It's obvious that God is working through these individuals. It's not the individuals themselves. Let me take you back to sort of our series uh, image for the book of Acts. I want to point out just a couple of things. The church is people, and they are activated when the Holy Spirit comes inside of them. That's what we see in the book of Acts. It's the same today. See all these crazy electronic sparks going everywhere? See how it's touching each person in the picture? That's representative of what we celebrated last week. That at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and rested on each individual. And it activated the church. It gives us our power. You see there's a trophy in the middle? You see there's a football? That represents the the idea that there's a real mission for the church. Football is a sport that has a real goal. There's a real winner and a real loser. And we don't just stand around like drinking Gatorade and talking football. We actually go and do stuff. If you've ever played football, we didn't play tackle this day, but if you've ever played football, it's a painful sport. It's a dangerous sport. There's real opponents trying to stop you, trying to punish you, in fact. And of course, the little green location pin. See the green location pin? Right between where you are. That says this, act where you are. Wherever God has placed you, that's where you get to be the church. Here's what I love about you going to work tomorrow. You get to go be the church individually where we can't be the church corporately. When you go to class tomorrow and you're sitting in a classroom, you're going between classes, you are the church individually where we can't possibly go corporately. So we take what we do in here on Sunday mornings. We pray this prayer. The the bridge we just sang, by the way, uh, is much of Acts 12 just encapsulated in song. We've already sung the message. So we take that with us out of church into wherever we'll go tomorrow. Acts chapter 12 is a prison break. And it starts really rough, hence the picture of Alcatraz, the rock. The text is going to mention Herod, and when you hear Herod, you think Herod in the Bible sounds familiar, but it gets a little confusing, because there's a lot of different Herods, and here's the reason. Herod is like a surname. It's like the the name Johnson or Smith. So you'll see Herods all over the place, and what it's describing is a family tree. And this particular family tree hates the people of God. They're a family tree that just produces bad apple after bad apple after bad apple. It's a dynasty. This Herod dynasty is in charge. The one that we're going to read about this morning, his grandpa is a guy named Herod the Great, which is a really curious name if you look at how he behaved. Herod the Great is the one responsible for slaughtering all the babies after the Magi's visit around Christmas time. Remember that part of the story? That's Herod the Great, this guy's grandpa. Herod Antipas, uncle of this Herod we're about to read, is the one who was responsible for taking the life of John the Baptist, beheading him. So you can imagine what Thanksgiving is like uh, with this Herod group. Uh, you know, Guy sidles up to uncle, uncle sidles up to grandpa, what's new? 
you know, evil and mayhem. How about you? Yeah, pretty much the same. Like, that's all they talk about is just how wicked they are. They just use their power against the people of God. Acts chapter 12, verse 1, follow along. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let me pause for a moment. One of the enemy's tactics is to go after leaders in the church, leaders in any Christian movement. You kill the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So there's a particular bullseye. As you are used by God in an influential way, as you become a voice that others are listening and seeking counsel to, know this, a tactic of the enemy is to take out the leaders. You know that James is the only apostle's death that we have recorded in scripture? So this is not James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is a different James, but he's the only one that we have recorded in the Bible. Other historians tell us how others died. So we, we actually know that the other apostles died for their faith as well. But those are sort of extra-biblical uh, instructions on that. Peter's next in line, but oops, it turns out execution, kind of like the mail, doesn't run on weekends and holidays. So here's what's interesting. Passover saves Peter for the moment. He is passed over because there's a Jewish holiday. And it would be bad form for this guy who sort of has one foot in Rome and one foot in Jerusalem. It'd be bad form to execute someone during Passover. So at this moment, it spares his life and he is put in prison. This four squads of soldiers is 16 soldiers on one guy. If this were the 1920s, he'd be right here at Alcatraz. Maximum security prison. Why, so, why 16 people for one guy? Because if you go back to Acts chapter 5, Peter has a history of miraculously escaping from prison. So they're like, I'm not going to take any chances with this guy. It really curried favor with the Jews to kill this other apostle, James. I'm going to make sure I get my guy, Peter. So he's in maximum security prison. Now, it's really interesting to note what the church is doing. Let me tell you what the church is not doing, according to the Bible. They are not organizing a mass protest. Do you see that? The church is not planning his escape. The church is not practice fighting and sharpening and gathering swords. They're not amassing an army. What they're doing is what we just sang. The church is battling on its knees. She's on her knees in desperation, turning to the only one who can make a difference. The battle belongs to the Lord. You want to see that overlaid in real life? It's when your pastor is in prison, scheduled to be executed just like the Apostle James was. And the holidays coming to a close. Let's move on. Look at verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Pause. Peter's situation, humanly speaking, he's utterly stuck. He looks around at his circumstances, and he says, there is no way out of this. On all sides, and then far beyond what I can't even see yet, are guards and gates that will leave me in a place where a position of a person in power has the right to do, legally in the land, what he just did to James. But you know, there's a few words that aren't Christian. Maybe you find yourself saying things you don't even believe. You know that impossible is not a Christian idea? Neither is chance. Neither is luck. You ever find yourself saying good luck? And you're like, wait a minute, I'm going to believe in luck. That's a weird thing to say. Let me have you write something down. You're only writing a couple things down this morning. I need you to be tired from singing. Here it is. Impossible is really unstoppable. When you stop and think about it, whatever feels impossible is really unstoppable. That means this. If God wants Peter in prison, he's not getting out no matter what happens. If God wants Peter out of prison, he's getting out no matter what else happens. So impossible is really unstoppable. There's no power in heaven on earth that can keep him in or out if God doesn't will it. But here's where I want you to pause for a moment. God's unstoppable is not our unstoppable. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of books and videos and sermons would totally butcher this. In fact, I could be a preacher that could get up and grab this one phrase and really go to town preaching it. Impossible is not unstoppable. And I would go off on that phrase. And I would like whip you into a Dole Whip frenzy of Disneyland fantasy about what that means from my perspective. And I could tickle your ears in such a way that you'd be like, yeah, preach it. And you'd go out of here going, that's right. Impossible is not unstoppable. I will get the girl. I will get the truck. I will get the promotion. Of course I'm going to get healed. And then we leave here. Monday smacks us in the face. And we kind of like go through our week. And many people come back to church. Why? Because they need to hear another. Impossible is really unstoppable. That's right. Let me get fired up again. Here's one simple question. I love how God in his wisdom does this over and over and over and over again. If you are hearing a preaching, reading a book, reading an article, watching a YouTube channel, and all you ever hear is the fired up, impossible is really unstoppable. If they start the sermon with Peter, 
Here's the simple question you ask. What about James? How did the chapter start? James had the blade taken to his head. That means he was killed. Is impossible really unstoppable for James? Church, hear me really clearly. Let me have all your eyes for one second. Is impossible really unstoppable for the Apostle James? You know what the answer is? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it leaves us with a challenging question. What do we mean by impossible is really unstoppable? When you factor God in, impossible is not a Christian idea. Are you tracking with that? But I think often, myself included, we go to unstoppable in our definition and not God's. So let me give you a follow-up, maybe framework for this, okay? Here's part two of this. Impossible is really unstoppable. So, God, where are you leading me? Impossible is really unstoppable. So, God, where are you leading me? I thought of a few other questions, and I think they're irrelevant. One could be, like, so God, what are you doing? Or, sir God, how are you working? But just like a little baby duckling, you don't have the foggiest clue what God is doing. Why is God allowing one apostle to die, and the other one, Peter, we're going to see it here, miraculously escape? We don't know. We're not privy to those things. So it's not even, God, what are you doing or how are you working? That's way above our pay grade. God, impossible is unstoppable. So where are you leading me? Are you leading me to the left or to the right? Do you want me to jump? Right? I mean, that song actually said it for us. I mean, Lucas was leading us. He's like, don't jump yet. Sometimes God wants you to jump. Sometimes he wants you to go in deep water. Sometimes he wants you to stay put. That little duckling, again, mom was a little confused. Mom led her into my golf bag, and I'm like, there's no way out there. I'm like, no, I didn't speak duck, so I don't know what to say. But, I mean, that little duck was just a mess going all over the place. But I thought about it. I thought, my life looks like the mama duck leading them all these different places. Why not use the crosswalk, (laughs) right? I don't know. But like this duck led right across and somehow you made it. If you look back in your life with God, God, where are you leading me? That's the pertinent question. I was reading some C.S. Lewis this week and uh, he was talking about this idea that, that as Christians, we are like actors on a play, but we're not privy to the whole script. So as an actor on the play, on on, on the stage of a play, you have no idea what scene it is. You have no idea when your scene is going to end or how long it's going to go. You have no idea how it fits into the bigger picture. The only one who does is the author. The author understands all of those things. The author can write in at the end this change or that change. The author understands how James the Apostle's death and Peter's miraculous escape that inspires the church can all work for his glory and his plan. That's a restful thought. To be able to sit back and rest in the sovereignty of the author. James loses his head. Peter's miraculously delivered. Both men are loved and intimately cared for by God. Amen? Each one of them 
is playing their role to the glory of God. And neither of them has much of a clue about what God is really up to and how he's working. In hindsight, we can sometimes gain some of that, but in the middle of it, it's so hard. Do not believe that one of these had more faith than the other. That's a common heresy right now. I guess James didn't have enough faith, so he lost his head. But Peter sure did. Don't believe for a second. That's a heresy. Don't believe for a second that one of them was more moral than the other. I guess James wasn't very moral, and so God took him out of the picture. God does what he pleases. He's on his throne. In fact, I would say this. Both of them escaped just how God wanted them to. James, your time on the stage is done. Enter into your rest. You escape this life of death and corruption. Enter into your rest. Anyone who ever dies in Christ is having the best day of their life. Don't ever forget that. The ones you mourn for are yourself. It's hard to lose loved ones. It's hard to lose people, whether it's a slow, predictable death or sudden and instant. So James is rescued from this earthly life. Peter is rescued from prison into a quiet street. Can we talk about Peter's sleeping patterns just for a second? Um, If you have the ability to sleep in the way that Peter does, rejoice. I mean, that's... That's astounding. Like, you know, I mean, you're, you're chained to two guys. You know, you're like, uh, Bob Elroy, I'm going to turn in for the night. Uh, it's been good hanging with you all day. Uh, good night. I'm a side sleeper, so I'd constantly be like this and then like this. I don't even know how this guy does it, but he's asleep. That's really remarkable to me. Here's what I thought about. When your church is praying for you, you can sleep like a baby. I love that this pastor knows. You know what? They're probably at Mary's house right now praying. God, you've got this. So he goes to sleep. When we adopted Cassie years and years ago, um, some of you in this room helped set up a round-the-clock prayer chain such that we knew when we were getting on a plane in Guangzhou, China, and flying nonstop to SFO, that we had our church praying for us. When you take custody of a little toddler that doesn't know you and you don't know them, you smell different, uh, smell different, sound different, act different, you don't know how to tend to their needs. I wasn't in prison, but we were buckled into a little long tube flying for about 10 hours. It might as well have been in prison. And we knew that this could be a really, really long 10 hours, not just for us, but for everyone around us. <laughs> and I remember like, just knowing that our church was praying. We thought, what else can we do? We have no control of how this is going to go. And to know that our church was praying, it just brought such incredible peace. You know how God answered on that occasion? We had a great flight home. Future ones, not so much. So um, God can answer however he wants. Philippians 4, 6, look at this. this. This is a bit of a life verse, and it's a life verse because it's a weakness of mine. It says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't you love that? Peter's in chains being guarded. But what's guarding his heart and mind? The peace of Christ. 
which goes way beyond explanation if you try to explain this apart from God. If you follow this story, any health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preacher would have to admit that walking in God's ways has led Peter to death row. That's what, it, that's what it's done so far. And yet he's in the very center of God's will. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. Is that God doesn't need our help, but he invites our participation. When one of us gets home from Costco, we have a small child labor force that comes and helps take all of the groceries in from the car. And it's a lot of trips because we have a lot of food that we're bringing in. And especially when they are little, um, the whole household is involved. Everyone knows they have to participate. It's just what we do. And when they're little, the littlest ones would come. Tate's sitting here. He's nine now. He does all kinds of stuff. But when Tate was really little, he might be carrying in a glass jar or a big old gallon of milk or something else that's kind of breakable. And, um, And I would help him and he would help me. And so we would kind of carry it in together. Now, as a dad, I didn't really need his help to be efficient, but I wanted his help to be inclusive. He's my boy. He's part of the family. He's going to learn how to do this. Eventually, I don't need to carry it. I don't need to guard Kaya as she's carrying groceries in. She has grown into that. But in the same way, God doesn't ever need our help. It's less efficient, I'm sure, to bring the human uh, agent into the equation. But isn't it powerful to know that he wants us to participate? He invites us to be part of what he is doing. He does so because of love. I love to involve my children. I love to teach them new things. I love to instill confidence that they know how to do these things on their own. So it is with our loving Heavenly Father, if we as sinful people know how to do that for our kids, how much more God to us? So God doesn't need your help. He wants your help. All through this chapter, it's the same way. Think about Peter's role in Peter's escape. Here's the sum total of his help. He overslept. He got himself dressed. He put on his own shoes. He slept walk out past the prison gates. And eventually we're going to see that he can't even get into the prayer meeting. So Peter's help in Peter's escape is pretty minimal. Would you agree? In fact, we would say that he he didn't really escape. He was delivered. Peter was delivered. Church, this is our story. Look at Zechariah 4.6. It says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I don't know what kind of prison comes to your mind when you see Alcatraz. Maybe it has to do with food or with fear. Maybe it's an addiction that's always lurking in the past that you have victory over right now, but it's right there waiting. Maybe it's actual jail time that's in your past. Whatever it is that sort of represents the impossible situation, the prison. You think about this. The way we're delivered is by the Spirit of God, not by our might. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's, uh, to, to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Consider, stop and think about. 
Verse 28 goes on to say that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing that, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So as you look at these two men in this chapter so far, Peter is delivered and James is set free, all because God wills it. And there's much in the Bible we don't understand or know. We're not given all the details that might raise up in our questions. Here's what I know. As I was thinking on this, I would pass on to you what I've discovered, and that is this. Stop looking for merit in an economy of grace. Stop looking for, like, who, who was it? Like, what did, what did James do different than Peter? Was the church not praying properly for James, or they prayed more for Peter? I think sometimes we want to know these details, thinking it will somehow ease the pain or difficulty. Dave, stop looking for merit in an economy of grace. Grace just levels the playing field. It asks completely different questions and therefore gets at deeper, truer answers. So we've been looking at the pastor. How about the church that Peter pastors? Look at how God uses men and women from all walks of life to do his will. Look at verse 11 with me. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That would be his death. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Don't you love Rhoda? Don't you love that Rhoda's in the Bible? Oh, it's just so good. I don't know if Rhoda's like new on the facilities team. She's like, I'll head up security that night. She probably got a cool fluorescent vest, maybe a walkie-talkie. Ah, Peter's here! I was tasked as a bank teller to bring the birthday cake for one of my coworkers one time at Bank of the West. I was driving a Ford Pinto, lime green, with surf racks on top. I went out to my car. I set the cake on the roof. I got in the car. I went down, uh, drove down Doyle Road, hung a right onto Lawrence Expressway. I'm driving all down Lawrence Expressway. Right at Highway 280, I make a more than 90 degree turn, and in my rearview mirror, I saw cake fly. Sheet cake, just all across the freeway. I thought it wise to hit the accelerator, which made me go, "Mm, it's a pinto, right? (laughs) Trying to flee the scene of the mess. I remember thinking about that going, priorities, Dave. First cake in the car, then start the car. I'm happy to report, I have never, ever lost a cake on top of a roof again. Pride comes before a fall. It may happen again. Rhoda, we've all been there. Let Peter in first, then tell the people. 
oh, but thanks for the laugh. Thanks for using Rhoda, God. Like, that's just such a good thing that Rhoda is in there. How about Mary? Mary gets this tiny brief mention, but think about this for a minute. The home where they are meeting is the home of Mary. Mary is wealthy enough to have an outer gate and a home large enough to house the church. She's a pretty wealthy person in this society. But here's what's beautiful. She's wealthy enough to, house the, to, to have an outer gate. She's generous enough to welcome the church in for prayer. You know that a key in any ministry around the world, as the gospel goes to different places, all through history, all through planet Earth, it takes all kinds of different people. And we don't just need wealthy people, but wealthy people who are generous. There are wealthy people who are generous that have allowed, God has used to keep this church going for 16, almost 17 years. You don't see them on stage. By default, because of other scriptures that would say this, not to do this, we don't, we don't name buildings after them. We don't have their name in lights. We don't hold banquets in their honor. They don't have their name on a plaque in the second row. Although I guess the second row isn't that desired. I don't know. It's scary. I'm just going to come over here and make all you nervous. You're like, I already had to dance in church. Don't come near me. Man, wealthy people who are generous. And by the way, this doesn't just have to be house or money. Church, you're a steward of something. Some of you are energetic like nobody's business. Some of you can talk and have the gift for gab like nobody's business. Some of you are wealthy relationally. We need that wealth and that generosity. That's part of the body of Christ working. So we have Rhoda. We have Mary. How about the church? We don't know individual names, but the church is praying fervently. That's really, really good. But they're praying without any faith. That's really, really bad. It's amazing that they are adamant that the very thing they're praying for couldn't possibly have happened. I don't know about you. Again, that just fills me with joy. I'm like, okay, Lord, I know I do a lot of stuff wrong. Here's a church that's like, they, that can't possibly be true, Rhoda. Go away. And then they're actually debating theology. Like, it must be his angel. He's probably dead. And his angel came to tell us that it's time to stop praying or something. Even when churches faithfully pray without faith, God can move. I'll tell you, the song we just sang could lead to a very me-centered way of doing Christianity. I've just got to get on my knees more. The battle belongs to the Lord, but I've got to spend... How much time is it? Do you know? In a merit economy, you better know how much time you need to pray. You better know how much faith you're supposed to muster up so that God will answer your prayer. An economy of grace... You say, man, I don't have to pray. I get to pray. I don't have to pray. What else would I do but pray? I have no other resources but to cry out to the one who holds the keys to any prison. I need to pray to Herod's boss. That's what I'm going to do. So that's what this church is doing, even though they don't believe that what they're praying for could possibly be true. Church, I want to just challenge us with this thought, God, you don't need our help, you invite our participation. Prayer is a muscle to be developed, not just individually, but corporately. I love that it shows the church praying desperately. Church, as we pray, let's, let's look at Acts chapter 12 and say that's a call to pray as a church. It's a call to pray big prayers. 
I don't know if they were just praying. Sometimes in our prayers, we cover for God, don't we? In case he doesn't come through, God, just, just comfort him through the weekend until Passover when, and help him to, to be brave in his death. Maybe it didn't even dawn on them to say, God, would you miraculously have chains fall off, have light come in, poke Peter awake, and get him out of there? Could you bring him to us tonight while we're praying? We have not because we ask not. Sometimes we have bad theology running through our head, and so we work ourselves up, and then if it doesn't come true how we said that we said it was supposed to be delivered, then all of a sudden we back off on our prayers. So church, I want to just, I want to say as one of the pastors here, let's grow up in this. Let's exercise that muscle. By the way, when apostles are killed, like James, keep praying. Pray for faith to stand strong. When apostles like Peter are delivered from prison, don't stop praying. Shift the conversation to praise and thanksgiving and awe. First Thessalonians says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. We don't stop once the, once the fear is gone, once the immediate crisis is gone. It just shifts. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This chapter closes by looking back at how Herod handled all of this. So I want to wrap up our time sort of in the same way. Look at verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod was on his royal robes, put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. I want to invite you to take where you are right now and as best you can, think about your family tree. Not your physical family tree, but sort of your spiritual family tree. And if you were to track your lineage back to one of these two people, are you walking in the ways of great-grandpa Herod today? Or are you walking in the ways of great-grandpa Peter? Just think about your own life. Let the text, let their lives ask questions of your life. Here's Herod's line. Herod's line are haters of God. They are born into this state. And Herod keeps up the family name by doing what grandpa did, by doing what uncle did. Herod's line is a lover of self. Herod's line promotes his will and builds his kingdom. Herod was externally free and in charge. He wasn't in prison that day. He was the one calling out the shots of who gets to go to prison. But internally, Herod is enslaved and impotent. Herod seeks praise from people. Herod leans on human explanation only. 
Do you know that if all you're left with is your reason, do you realize that reason, the gift of reason that God gave our brains, is under the curse? It's part of the fall. So you come up with wrong conclusions. He's going, what happened? And these soldiers paid with their life because he figured it must have been an inside job. Angels are just God's ministering spirits. What does God's ministering spirit angel do to Herod? It struck him in judgment. So Herod dies for lack of change. Worm food is his end. Contrast that with Peter. And by the way, I know this is really, really small. You can just take a screenshot or you can ask for it later and I'll just hand it to you. Peter's line. Lover of God, he's born again into this state, not his natural state. Peter denies himself. Peter lives or dies for Jesus. Your will be done. Peter is externally enslaved and persecuted. Internally, he's free and powerful. Peter seeks to praise God and serve people. Peter sees God's hand at work. Hey, let me tell you how I was delivered out of prison. He's happy to report on what God has done. An angel struck Peter also, but for him it was deliverance. Wake up, Peter! Some of you have family members. It's like you need an elbow to that person to get him up. And Peter lives abundantly. His everlasting life has already begun. Friend, there is hope in no other name than Jesus Christ. Think about Peter as a picture of us, unless God intervenes. Peter's case was hopeless. He's in prison. He's surrounded by guards. He's asleep and condemned to die. We are born into a state that says this. We are unable to escape and asleep in our sin. Until and unless God sends his Holy Spirit to jab us awake and have his light flood our prison cell, we're dead men. We're dead women. We're on death row. But the Holy Spirit comes, the chains fall off, and God leads us to freedom. He lets us walk right out of our sin and our guilt. As the band comes up today, if you hear his voice, walk out of your prison. You may have said, I prayed a prayer once, but my life never changed. You might be what the Bible calls a false convert. You may have gotten emotionally worked up. You may have believed that impossible is unstoppable, but you were looking at it from a man's perspective. The gift of salvation is quite simply, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Jesus is the chain breaker. God, I repent. I receive your forgiveness today. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, this chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power, friend, in a person's life and in a situation to completely reverse. 
the plans of man, the plans of the enemy for your ruin and your death are reversed such that God establishes his own plans in their their place. Would you pray with me? God, this last verse, but the word of God multiplied and increased. That's what we're doing here today. The word of God has multiplied and increased in our lives this week. As we give ourselves to it, as we plant seeds to it, and by your grace, have a desire to be careful to do all that you've commanded and instructed. God, we will be like those little ducklings, inexplicably going from lost through the danger and safe on the other side. God, many of us face this week really terrifying situations. God, many of us have felt like we have lived in a season of impossibility for a long time and we don't know if we can make it another week. God, in our desperation, would you fill us with faith? Would you help us just to look to you, look to your glory, look to your resources, put all of our attention on our only hope? God, our lives really, this is true of all of us at all times, unless you come through, unless you sustain us, we are utterly hopeless. God, part of corporate worship is the gift that says we're standing on the firm foundation of God and his word. We're souls that have been made hungry for you by the spirit of Christ in us. God, we love you and praise you.